1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry, and oh boy, Taylor went and left the kids home alone to play by themselves. By kids, I mean myself and David Goss, and by play, I mean talk about all the ins and outs of the latest batch of MLS playoff games. Goss, first off, hello, greetings, good to see you, how are we? And second off, was this a smart decision from Taylor Rockwell? Your analysis, please. So
2: first of all, I'd say your intro, you're about an octave shorter than Taylor is on the Hello and Welcome. (laughs) So you're getting closer, but you still have a distance to go. And I think it is smart from Taylor. It's just the it's Brazilian style, right? It's like at some point, you got to let your playmakers play. And like, Mm. we're two games into a playoff series. We got format conversation. We're obviously going to talk about the format for 45 minutes. Of course. So Taylor said, rather than get in the way. Let me just roll the ball out there and leave and see what happens.
1: I like it. I like it, man. Uh, first of all, I take the uh, the feedback on the intro. I I have internalized that. I'm going to use it to adjust my strategy next time. The last time you and I did a an MLS show together, I mimicked Ryan's uh, rhyming style. This mm-hmm. time I went with a, a sort of more streamlined, a little more taylor esque intro. And you know, I feel like there's a sweet spot somewhere. I haven't quite found it yet, but we're well, going to work you. on it. That's <sighs> So true man. It's yeah, so that's true. The, it's so true. That's the I work I work a lot
2: around youth development. You no. often yeah, you often mimic the player that you're trying to become, but at some point you got to find you and who you are on the field. I'm
1: going to take full advantage of of uh, Taylor's upcoming paternity leave and really w- use that opportunity to find my go. lane. So we're going we're going work hard on that. Um, the other thing you mentioned Goss, about us being playmakers. i've I've seen me play soccer, and I've seen you play soccer. we've We've seen each other play soccer together. Yeah, not I'm not else. sure I would use that word to describe our game in an actual soccer context, but I'm optimistic that it will fit better in an MLS context. How say you? Uh, I mean, I'm the Connor Casey of Playmakers when I'm put up top, so uh, yeah, I think MLS is my sweet spot. Um, okay, that's that's one thing out of the way. The other thing we got to get to before we get into the meat, we're going to talk through the second game of all of these series outside of New England, Philadelphia, which kicks off tonight. The schedule for these games makes it a bit difficult to get all the batches at once. So we, we almost got it all recording on a Wednesday. The other thing we got to get to, Gus, you came for me at the end of the regular season. I my did. predictions... You know, you talked a big game. We did did then a playoff bracket where Taylor hosted. We did this on the Patreon and whoever picked a team, the other person got stuck with the other team, right? So if I picked LAFC, you got stuck with Vancouver. And that is what happened. Gus, not to, not to put you down too far, I am doing quite well for myself at this point in time. Sporting Kansas City was a big pick for me. I avoided both one seeds, and SKC made that look like a very smart decision. I also have a point from LAFC and a point from Orlando. Add those to SKC's two points, and I'm sitting at four confirmed with one, two, three, four others still on the table. Gosh, I'm feeling good, man. So I know I have Houston, which I'm waiting on.
2: Do you have Dallas or Seattle? I have Seattle.
1: This feels yeah. tough for me. This yeah. feels like an you're, you're up against the wall, my friend. You are yeah. up against and the wall. revs Philly. I Philly. Yep. So yeah, I'm screwed.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, we'll talk about that when we talk about the games. But sure. I had confidence in some people elevating their games, and those people went out of their way to not them. only not do that, they actually yep. played their worst soccer of the year. Yep. Well done. It's the David Goss curse right there, ladies so, and gentlemen. <laughs> so you you've been
1: you've been I think. You've saved your reputation through this. I would like to think that I sort of am the sporting Kansas City of MLS predictions. So start slow, right? A lot of injuries early on, a lot of difficulties, a lot of off-the-field challenges. Then you sort of get things straight in May, which is also my birth month, by the way. That's when SKC turned things around. Maybe there's something to that. And then the postseason, we're knocking down number one seeds. We're knocking down the folks who have talked a big game, talked a lot of smack, And now all of a sudden we're coasting towards a big run in the postseason. And I I think as many people would say
2: about St. Louis, I was a bit of a fake number one seed. My points were not at the number one seed level, but the rest of the conference was bad. And you know what? I'll accept that.
1: Yeah, I think that's right about where we are right now. Well, guys, we're not starting in the Western Conference on today's show. We're going to go through first the series that still have some jeopardy. So we'll get through all of the games that have happened in this latest Uh, game two for all of these series, but we're gonna start with the ones that are tied one to one after this most recent set of games. Let's start with the game last night over in the Eastern Conference, maybe the best game of this entire round, Atlanta United four, Columbus crew two, Mata's back after picking up double yellows on decision day. Um, Not to really start us off with too hot of a take here, David, that important for Atlanta. That very, very important to have Thiago Almada back in their team. Pineda gets back in the 4-2-3-1. Saba's back in the lineup. This team, to me, Goss, looked entirely different from the one that we saw in Game 1.
2: Completely. And I guess if you look at it, Thiago is probably the best player as an individual in the postseason. So getting the best player back, not just on your team, but maybe in the entire playoffs probably helps your team. It helped the way they set themselves up, which was more natural to what they've done over the course of the season. And then coming home helps as well. That's the part that I don't know where to read in on Almada's introduction and being a home team in MLS, which gives you an advantage, and you'll play on the front foot. But for Atlanta, coming into the playoffs, there are positives and negatives. They are a good offensive team. They create a ton of chances. They are a horrendous defensive team. In the first game, they tried to defend. Throughout and win through their defense, they were incapable of that. In this second game, they pushed the attack, they scored four goals, that was all they needed. They conceded two in both games. They won one and they lost one. I think it shows you how they're capable of playing. And I think when you look at Thiago Amada in this game, it's less his ability to unlock a defense and more the safety when the ball's at his feet for everyone else to push their numbers forward. You know if you're Caleb Wiley or Brooks Lennon or Saba or even Muyumba, that you can make that run when Almada has the ball because he won't lose it in a bad spot and he will get out of tight spaces and he will keep possession for you. And I think you saw that overwhelmingly on a number of their goals and a ton of the chances created, which was numbers in dangerous places in the final third or overloads
1: that didn't exist in the first game. Atlanta jump out to the lead in this game. It's Yakamakis in the 38th minute. Then Columbus equalized. Then Atlanta get one back right before halftime, which I, I think was a crucial moment of this game to mm-hmm. go and take the lead heading into halftime that put obviously Atlanta right back in the driver's seat they were in though the driver's seat for a, a ton of this game and they did that Gus with with Almada having some good moments and he brings so much the calm that you just described is a big part of what allows this Atlanta team to be dangerous add in his, his vision and his playmaking and the fact that he's goal dangerous he gets a goal in this game like And you have a player who's gonna break the outgoing MLS transfer record if and when that actually happens for him and he goes over to Europe. Like, this guy's the real deal. We're not breaking any new ground there. One of the things that stood out to me most in this game, though, is Almana wasn't constantly the one having to do all of the playmaking for Atlanta. It wasn't him having 100% of the creative burden on his shoulders. It was a lot of the players that Garth Lagerwey went in and, and brought in. Maybe Carlos Bocanegra deserves some credit here as well. It's really hard to say from an outsider's perspective, but... It's players that came in after Garth Lagerwey comes into this team in the summer transfer window. It's John De Silva on the left. It's Saba on the right. It's Moyumba deeper in midfield. And I thought those two wingers in particular were very, very good in this game. Saba doesn't get on the score sheet, but he's buzzing around the field. He reminds me, and I don't know if this clicks for you at all, he reminds me a lot of Paul Areola and how he hums around the field, quick, direct, vertical kind of player, maybe with a little bit better vision on the right side for Atlanta. But those players, I, I felt like this game, David, was... A very strong advertisement for what Garth Lagerwey brings to this organization. Absolutely. I agree with
2: you. And I think it's not like an unheard of conversation with what you're looking for. Because when I look at Jean de Silva, I think back to what we talked about in the offseason. And I'm obviously now pointing at myself, which was I did a golden boot draft and I picked Eric Etienne Jr. Of having a player on the wing who can be dangerous in their moments but isn't ball dominant. And with Jande Silva, I think from the moment he came to Atlanta, the first thing I see is his ability to play in defense off the ball. He presses hard. He works hard. He's in the right position. And this is a team that needs that from those spots. And so the goal scoring and his creativity, I think, is secondary to the work he does to allow Almada the platform to give space for Caleb Wiley to make runs around the outside. Less in this game, but over the course of the season— but then you look at two players, like you said, that work hard, that make the right runs, that are in the right space. And now I think Saba has a little bit more 1v1 creativity than a Paul Areola. And so I thought, especially on Silva's goal, his ability in that right channel to beat his defender and then find Yakumakis was a game-breaking play that they didn't have in the first game because Saba didn't start. They haven't had at times throughout the last two years because Araujo hasn't been Effective at that and other players that have been played out there haven't been effective. And I started out talking about Atlanta's strengths and weaknesses. It goes to Columbus's weaknesses. Great attacking players along the back line. Not true natural defenders, a lot of them. Or not high-level 1v1 defenders. So if you're going to have Zawatsky and Odmanson along that left wing, at some point, someone has to beat them 1v1. And we know one of the weaknesses for Columbus is Headers on you know 50-50s aerially, especially from deep crosses. Schultz struggles to come out. Camacho's not elite. The other two guys next to him aren't really center backs. But the other part is that 1v1 defending. If you can get into good spaces. And I thought Saba took advantage of that the most. And that caused bigger breakdowns for Columbus. And that's where, I think, one, you go back and say, should you have started Saba in the first game? Even without Almada, would it have made you more dangerous? Did you step too far away from who you are in trying to steal a result in Columbus? And if they lose Game 3, especially playing the way we think they'll play, because now Almada's back, I think that's something Pineda's going to go back and think about a lot. Um, but I, it worked for you in Game 2. And as you said, it worked for you in the transfer window. Miyumba's the other one. Like Those three players were three of the five most important players yesterday – on the team. And three of them were acquired in the summer by Garth Lagerway and whoever else was working under him.
1: Yeah, it's when you watch this Atlanta team, they're one of the most player driven teams in Major League Soccer, which is why I think a lot of our conversations about Atlanta United come back to the individuals. It starts with Almada, then it goes to Yakamakis, then it goes to the wingers. And then you work your back, you work your way back through each line of the field. You watch this team play. Gonzalo Pineda is not drawing up super complex final third patterns like the, he he and Wilford Nance approach coaching very very differently ultimately every team is player driven because if it's Wilford Nance coaching 11 Jill Lowry's on the field they're not going to be a good soccer team but like Atlanta United don't too many playmakers <laughs> too many too many playmakers it's exactly right no one's back to do the dirty work they're all just threading through balls uh, all day long Yeah, Atlanta United are defined by the quality and so now that they have all of these new additions in the squad coupled with the talent that was already there they are Dangerous, and I think even with a really poor miss from John De Silva that we have to mention just um, by by law, I think is how that works. Also, one other John De Silva moment before I get back on track, he scores the goal right before halftime, and and some staff member of Atlanta United hands him the Spider Man mask that's gone not viral on Twitter, but you can find it on social media pretty easily. He puts it on; it's a sick photo. He then gets a yellow card because that's what's going to happen in that situation. But MLS then posts pictures of John De Silva wearing the Spider Man mask to like build hype on social media. I saw Paul Harvey tweet this, I think it was Paul, saying basically, if MLS is going to use you to promo their product and they gave you a yellow card for doing it, I think they should have to resend that yellow. And Paul, I completely agree with you on that. Yes, power to the people, Joe. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. But with Atlanta, there's so much quality in this team. The more and more I think about this, the more I think maybe this is a bad matchup for Columbus heading into the third game. They're still favored. They're still going to have the edge. I would still bank on Columbus winning this series. But Atlanta... They're, they're maybe the only team in Major League Soccer, guys, who can actually go punch for punch with Columbus in the final third. They scored the most goals, Atlanta United, of any team in the regular season. Columbus was second in that category. These were the two best attacking teams in the regular, in the, in the regular season. Uh, even though Atlanta United struggled defensively, we saw some of those same weaknesses here from Columbus. I think it's going to be on Sunday, whoever can throw really the last punch in this game is going to be the team that advances to the next round.
2: Yeah, and I I don't think that's a bad matchup because I think for Columbus, like you're in your comfort zone. Even in this game, right? They come back, they make it 1 1. Um, It comes off a turnover that they find in, in the final third, which is not exactly how they always create chances. And it was a bit of an unusual moment for that opening goal. But like there are openings there. I thought Cucho got enough touches around the final third to create for his teammates as well. There just wasn't as many finishing runs as possible and I think you go home and you're going to have more possession at home than you did on the road and you're going to have a chance to create I think Christian Ramirez came off the bench just his first appearance so it'll be interesting to see what the decision is there I think obviously Diego Rossi stays in the team so do you sort of move a bunch of pieces around to get Christian Ramirez back into the team? Do you drop Cucho deeper? Do you push him out wide? Do you change your shape a little bit? I, there's a few decisions there for Nance to make, and I get your point, which is like no one else in the playoffs has the firepower that Columbus has, but it also means for the third time it's gonna well not for the third time because the first game was bizarre, but it will be a game state that Columbus is comfortable in. What's tough is most of their goals have come off transition. I don't think. The movement around the final third has been quick enough. And I'm going to say this about a couple teams. I think most of the teams that have struggled in the playoffs, teams are going to be clean with their lines. They're going to defend pretty resolutely. They're going to defend as a team. You have to be quicker on the rotation of the ball. And I think it's when it's coming across the top of the 18, that's where that pass has to come quicker, whether it's breaking a line in or just pushing it to the other side. I thought it was a little bit slow when Columbus was in the attacking third setting up their possession at times in this second game. And that's where I think Nance is going to focus on seeing if he can create more chances for his
1: team in this third game. Game three coming up in this series. We're going to come back with more playoff talk. Actually, we're just talking about the format for the rest of the show. So you've been warned. No, we're talking back with more actual soccer talk after the break. Stay with us.
0: This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu.
1: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, folks, we are back digging into now over in the Western Conference, Real Salt Lake's 1-1 win over the Houston Dynamo, thanks to, a, thanks to a 5-4 penalty kick shootout result. Goss, I know you talked a, a bit of smack about this game and how it was the only game on Monday, and it was, right? It was the only game that we saw Monday evening. For me, this game followed almost exactly the pattern that we expected. And I think this is sort of what fueled some of your, not not dread about this game, but some of your expectations for it. RSL had a bit more of the ball at home. They're not typically a very dangerous team when they have the ball. The Houston Dynamo looking a little bit more one-dimensional away from home where they're playing more on the break and not getting as many chances with the ball at the feet of someone like Hector Herrera. This game, for me, followed that pattern. Did you feel the same? Until Chicho came on the field, which also followed the
2: pattern, which is like Hmm. Chicho's a game changer. The one thing I did forget and credit is RSL home playoff atmosphere is like elite in MLS. Like the fans in that stadium when it's this time of year are as good as anyone in MLS. And like that part is always fun. But otherwise, yeah, pretty much everything you just said. I don't think RSL had a dangerous opportunity or half chance until Chicho came on. And then the free kick or corner kick, whatever it was, the play he came on, they got a chance on goal. And the game completely shifted over the next
1: 10 minutes. It really did. Chicho Arango is the best goal scorer in this series, and he's been dealing with a hamstring injury. He comes back, gets off the bench in this game. That's absolutely massive for RSL. I think if there was one thing that would sort of tip the tide back towards them a little bit in this series, Houston still will be favored again. This format does a lot for the top seeds based off of the regular season success because you get two home games. But this does a lot for RSL to get them back a little bit because he was goal dangerous in this game. And the combinations between Diego Luna, who is... Maybe the most fun player in the entire postseason, or he's right up there. Like he, I'll be shocked, David, if he's not at the Olympics next summer with the United States. He's going to be someone who's pulling a lot of the strings for RSL in this game three that's coming up, and likely at a higher level, or at least again next season in a, in a larger role for Real Salt Lake. The combination for me between Luna and Chicho Arango is like the thing. It is RSL's lifeline to get Arango back in time so that Luna actually has someone to to distribute to. And you don't just have to rely on bangers from Savarino, which you get in this game to equalize in the 70th minute. But that's not a sustainable way to attack. And even Pablo Mestrani would tell you that, I'm sure.
2: There's a moment right after Arango comes in where Luna gets the ball in the right channel in the box. Yep. And he spins and plays a blind chip to the far post that Chicho is there for that he never looks, right? Already in whatever few months these guys have played together, They already have that understanding, as you said. Luna knows the moment Arango comes on the field, these options are now available to him. This guy's going to make these runs. He's going to pull defenders away as well, so he's got more space to operate. I think you saw him go out wide a little bit more because he knew if he played in crosses, there was someone on the end of it. Anderson Julio is not getting on the end of crosses. Like, there's no point if you're Diego Luna of going out wide and serving in crosses if Anderson Julio is the center forward. I think we've seen he's pretty one-dimensional of like, he can only affect games when he's running at tired defenders. And that's a whole nother conversation. I, I don't know how that happens to you, but whatever. Um, but I, I, as you said, I, I think the game changes for Luna when Arango comes in. And in saying Chicho Arango is the best goal scorer in the series, it's true. But like, so is Yakumakis in the other series. And in game one without Almada, Yakumakis doesn't touch the ball. Arango does more to affect the game sure. than just a pure goal scorer. And I thought that's what kind of... Surprise me or I forgot when he comes on is like there are a few touches that breaks the game open. He helps I think RSL push their line even higher. In the opening 5 minutes Nelson Palacios comes in. He tries to win a ball in the attacking half against Houston. Gets called for a foul, sets the tone. I thought he was phenomenal. That was a change in central midfield. And so RSL played this entire game higher up the field. They put more pressure on Houston. They pressed higher. They were able to create turnovers higher. But then Arango added another five or so yards into it for them to be closer to goal when mistakes happen. And it's a mistake from Houston that causes the first free kick that Steve Clark chooses to punch under pressure rather than try and bring it down. The punch goes out to, I believe, Savarino, who gets fouled for the free kick that scores the goal. So it's sort of a series that happens there that doesn't occur if is
1: not a part of the game. Yeah, he does bring value, Gus, to your point, in other phases, not just inside the box, which really is what Yakamakis does so well. I've said it a bunch of times. Yakamakis kind of plays for listeners like Erling Holland, and that they're slashers in behind the back line. He likes to make those little diagonal runs to be very, very clear. He doesn't do it at an Erling Holland level, otherwise, he would not be playing for Atlanta United. But he gets on the end of a lot of those through balls, and his most dangerous aspect then is inside the box. And that's how Yakamakis gets his goal. In the, in the game we just finished talking about, was a great header taking Moreira completely off guard. But Arango brings a little bit more, and he gives someone for Diego Luna to go out and, and combine with, to play with, and that gives RSL a lifeline, I think. The other thing, gosh, me, that gives RSL a bit of a lifeline going into the third game is that the Houston Dynamo still are not a complete team. Like, e- even their star players are vulnerable at times. Coco Carrasquilla is somebody that we both praised plenty of times in the past, is a very, very good player, has had... You know, some bits and spots of European interest in the past and I think will end up there before too long. He was not good in this game. He was not effective on the ball. He was not dangerous for, for uh, the Houston Dynamo. Now, he is the, the midfielder that Ben Olsen has sort of pushed a little bit outside of his natural role. So in possession, Houston usually switch to more of a 3-2-5 shape. They defend in a 4-4-2 and then everything just kind of slides over one spot to get into a 3-2-5 in possession. Franco Escobar stays deep as the left-sided center back at times. He pushes forward at times as well. And then you have Coco Karaskia shift from defending as a right-sided midfielder, when he is in fact a central midfielder, to then in possession being in the right half space. Like he's not dropping deep all the time to get touches. That's Artur and that's Hector Herrera. It's Coco Karaskia and Amin Bassi who are in the half spaces. So overall, my, my take on, on Karaskia is that he's not really in his best role in possession. I think you'd rather have him dropping a bit deeper to influence the game, but really you'd rather have Hector Herrera and Artur do that. So he's sort of been put into a slightly more difficult position but he was not dangerous in this game. We saw Corey Baird's limitations as a holdup striker, as somebody who's not always able to influence the game. I mean, it's, it's Corey Baird, right? He's, he's good at a lot of things. He's a professional soccer player. He's not a number nine that you feel great about leading you on a postseason run. So I know some folks out there have Houston going deep. I know some folks out there have them getting all the M, all the way to MLS cup. I think Tom picked that in his bracket. I, I, I just can't see it. I still, I still see Houston advancing, the pattern of game three is going to look very much like game one. Dynamo dominating the ball, Hector Herrera influencing the game in the final third, them trying to combine their way through. But unless RSL put together more of those Justin Glad, you know, sliding to home base kind of tackles, which is what gets Houston the penalty that Bassey has saved and then hits the rebound, like it's hard for me to envision the Dynamo creating clear cut chance after clear cut chance because I just don't know that they're quite there right now against a team like RSL that compresses space so frequently. It it would have been 2-0 Houston
2: if Corey Baird puts away that second opportunity that he puts over a crossbar. So to your point, for some teams, they're up 2-0 on the road. The game's over. And that's not the case for Houston. I think the other name you didn't mention, the only one you didn't up there, is Quinones. And you saw it all with him in this game. You saw the good, which is he got behind the back line multiple times. He got to the end line. He got in dangerous situations. And the bad – which was he pretty much, outside of the one Baird missed, never created danger in those moments. So it's he goes for a shot rather than a pullback, so the next time he goes for the pullback, but the defender knows it's coming, so it gets blocked. And all of the opportunities Quinone has created were because Brody has to overload to help RSL create chances, especially before Arango comes in. And again, it's 2-0, that game is over. Even if Chicho Arango comes off the bench in that atmosphere at 2-0, I think that game is over, and Houston doesn't have the ability to get over that line. And it was the same in the first game; they win at home, they dominate, and RSL ties it 1-1 at some point. And so, to your to what you're saying, Houston doesn't have that killer instinct; they don't have that extra piece. And I think one of the things we've seen over the last two weeks is like the playoffs are different; it gets a little bit tougher. And there's a question if Houston can elevate to that level. I think they have enough, as you said, against RSL to get there. But against SKC, against Seattle, against LAFC, maybe against FC Dallas, I'd be shocked. Um, I don't know that that still stands out. And and over this first series, Houston has looked like what we thought Houston would look like. And so there are the same question marks that exist. Now, Corey Baird has had some good games. If he has a good game at the right time, that puts you up 1-0. Or, excuse me, now, after this, it'll put you through to the next round. So the potential still exists. Franco Escobar came off hurt in this game. They brought on Teenage Hedebi instead. He is a center back. I think that's a little bit interesting when you talk about that shifting. And I wonder if Escobar is out. Does Brad Smith get the opportunity? Does Brad Smith start instead of Quinones, maybe, to make you a little safer but still have some attacking ability on that wing? I think there's a few decisions in there for Houston. But with Coco Karaschia, that's just how the team is built right now. Um, unless you push Bossy out wide, which I don't think fits his best skill set, you have all these center midfielders. But there's positive in that, which is they dominate possession. You have a lot of options to move the ball through. When you get into the final third, I talked about with Almada, your fullbacks being able to trust that they can commit because you're not going to lose the ball. Karaskia is another safe pair of hands. In that area, that when you play through him, you know you're not going to turn it over in a bad area. So I think those are all the strengths of Houston. And I think we saw a lot of it. I mean, they went to penalty kicks. Like they were a shootout miss away from closing this series on the road, which in MLS, any results on a road is impressive, especially when you go into a playoff atmosphere. Yeah, agree with a lot of that.
1: Goss, anything else on this game before we move to Dallas, Seattle?
2: Amin Bossi's been one of the best penalty kick takers in the league. He missed twice. In this game, he scored on the rebound in the run of play, and he misses the opening shot in the shootout. I don't know how much that means, but there's a pretty good chance there's going to be a penalty in the third game. There's a pretty good chance it goes to a shootout. I just wonder the mind games that's going on there with him. He's scored in double digits, and I think eight of them were penalty kicks over the course of the regular season. Like He is an elite shootout taker or penalty taker, and I actually thought his finish off the rebound was pretty impressive. Like, Zach McMath closes the space. He's pretty calm about placing it to the far side. But it's just something to to look out for with Houston because I think in this third game, as you get through things, you start to look at, like, okay, if this player's production on the field isn't elite, we need him on the field for a shootout. Well, if he's missed back-to-back penalties, do we still need him on the field for a shootout? And my assumption is Ben Olsen will still lean that way with no extra time in the game going after 90 minutes. But... I just think it's
1: something to look out for that I wouldn't have expected. Seed the doubt, got seed the doubt. As someone with RSL and our little competition between the two of us, um, I would I would appreciate that doubt actually coming to fruition, even though I've got Houston in my real big boy bracket. All right, let's move on to another matchup in the Western Conference, the other series that is currently going to a game three. FC Dallas beat the Seattle Sounders 3-1 in Frisco. I'll admit, I did not expect Dallas to fight back nice. in, in this series, they did, and they. I thought they played well to start this game, two early goals. This, to me, David, felt like the Dallas that we've been waiting for, like a team that is dynamic in the early stages, right? After you go up 2-0 inside 18 minutes, things change and the calculus changes, and you probably do want to tweak your approach and be a little bit more antagonistic, and I think that's what Dallas did in this game. But this felt like the FC Dallas we've been waiting for and kind of the one that we were promised when Nico Estevez took over, moving from Greg Baralther's staff to, to taking a job as the head coach for FC Dallas, what changed in this game for you? Like, what changed to make Dallas into an actually dangerous team? Is it just Jesus Serrera putting the ball in the back of the net? Or, or what is it for you? Well, I thought more important was Paul Ariola waking up. I
2: did like a whole soliloquy last week about, do we just have no expectations about Paul Ariola? Like, this is a designated player, international, on this team where they struggled in game one and Jesus didn't finish his chances. But there was like no other blame on this roster. It was the roster's not good enough and Jesus Ferrer didn't finish his chances while Paul Ariola is sitting there not giving them enough. And so what was key to me in the performance and you see it on the goal was he came inside and played soccer. He didn't just hang outside and hope for a, uh, an opportunity in transition and just defend and credit to him right off the ball. He does a lot of things. He came inside. He created overloads in moments. He created chaos. Paulo lets him go. Reagan doesn't know who's tracking him. It's an open header on the top of the six, and he puts it away. He does very well to know, I don't have to do too much here. The angle of the cross is good. I'm just going to flick it on. But everything about that play up into it, he has not done over the course of this season. And last year when he was good, it was because Velasco and Frero would create overloads on the other side, and he was a back post crasher. That's a formation or a setup that sort of makes decisions for him. You need to see a designated player be able to go out on the field, create chaos, and make decisions on the fly at a high level. He did that. He creates the first goal. I think that takes a ton of pressure off Dallas. Then they start playing the soccer that you want to see them play. And so I, I think this is a team that is defensively strong. We know that. They have a lot of individuals in Martin Pos and in Kosi Tafari that you can trust. Iramende has only added to that. The question has always been goals. And, like, you feel – the stress on the team when they don't score. You feel them pushing. So you score in the sixth minute. You score again right after. Bernie Kamunga is healthy, so he's in the team, which has been their one sort of solution over the last few weeks. And I think you started to see a lot of the stress and worry from game one go away.
1: From an FC Dallas perspective, getting good games not just from Paul Arriola, but also from Kamunga, who I thought had a good but not great game. And the thing that, that stopped it from being a great game is that he has the turnover that leads directly to Seattle's goal. So he plays the ball backwards. Jordan Morris ends up through on goal. That's It's not a good moment from Kamungo, but he was very impactful on the right wing early on in this game. On the first goal, it's the cross in that Kamungo has to Areola that Areola finishes and the play that you already detailed. And the second goal, which is a, a penalty that's scored by Jesus Ferreira in the 18th minute, Kamungo draws that from Nuhu inside the box. Like it was an obvious penalty. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. Kamunga was in and around and creating the danger early on in this game. And that's what FC Dallas have needed. Like this team is built to where when Jesus Ferreira is playing as the number nine, they need vertical goal-dangerous wingers. And throughout this season, they have not had those. Alan Velasco starts, comes in last season, supposed to be a winger for them, doesn't work out, right? He's voted number one in 22 under 22 by honestly, who knows who this year. And there was no merit for that whatsoever because he has not been goal-dangerous. He has not been a dangerous chance creator So he's out injured in this game, which on paper feels like it would be a blow. Somebody who's been in Argentine national team camps for one reason or another and is now, you know, very well respected around Major League Soccer, but has not proven that. When Alan Velasco's out, it feels like, okay, well, maybe they will miss him, right? Maybe they'll miss him in some way. Maybe he'll turn it on as a DP. He has not done that. But instead, in this game, it was former MLS Next Pro player Bernie Camungo on the right side. It was Paul Rayola, who's been a ghost of his former self this year, 28 years old, I think just two goals in, in the regular season. Seems pretty clear, even though he's dealt with some challenges this year, that he is well past his prime and not someone who can be counted on on any sort of consistent basis. Dallas just need those two wingers, along with Ferreira, who's, I think, still a very good player. There are some finishing woes here and there, the balls that you wish went other ways, but that's how it works for every soccer player. If Dallas continue to get this level of production from Kamungo and from Areola surrounding Jesus Serrera, they've got a shot, right? I think both of us would say it's a very, very long shot for Dallas in Game 3 against Seattle, Home field advantage for the Sounders. I think this performance from Seattle, they didn't start well. To me, it felt more like an anomaly than like the regularity for them. But if Dallas are getting high-level production out of their wingers, out of their entire front three, and they've got Paxton Pomico eating up everything in midfield, which is basically what he did again in this game, that could be game-changing
2: for them. If you're Dallas too, if you're Nico Estevez, you go in and say, if we finish our chances game one, we won. Right, And then we won game two. So like the argument for them also isn't hard. The the motivation there isn't that tough. Now on the Seattle side, I'd be shocked if Nico Ladero doesn't start in game three. They were clearly more dangerous after he came on. All the chances they created in this game were Jordan Morris over the top. I don't think those will exist in game three because I don't think Dallas will play as high up the field on the road. And so the question then becomes who creates chances. We've seen Christian Roldan do it. Leo Chu, I think, has been fine for them as a player, but Rusnak is not as goal-dangerous. And so they're going to have to figure out who in the midfield three goes out if Ladero comes in. But I would be surprised if Nico Ladero isn't a part of this starting team in which goals have been a little bit of an issue and you don't really want to go through an elimination game three at home without scoring longer. So rather than say, okay, He only has 45 good minutes in him. We're going to bring him off the bench. I think you start him. You have five subs. You have three breaks to do it in, plus halftime. Like, I think you start him. You try and establish the tone earlier of what you were able to do late in last game while you're trying to come back and what you did late in game one. You shift that into the first half, and you see if you can take a lead at home, you probably kill a lot of Dallas's spirit. And I think for Seattle. And I wouldn't be shocked if Brian Schmetzer leaned back on his guys, right? That's what he's done. You talked about Gonzalo Pineda in the first game we talked about. He is more of a go out and play coach. He comes from Brian Schmetzer's coaching school and Schmetzer has had success, which is they have elite talent. He's able to create the environment for them to contend. And he's able to put them on the field and let them play. And he has normally leaned back on guys who have been there for him in the past. I wouldn't be shocked if Lodero was there. Um, I think Seattle fans would be mad if we didn't mention that Hazers Ferreira pulled Raul Rui Diaz's jersey while he was making a run for a ball he wasn't going to get to at some point in the game. I don't feel super strongly either way on this one. Just playing I it think safe. Seattle Just fans playing it do. safe, baby.
1: That's the yeah. right call, gas. That's the right move.
2: I can guarantee you this: if Nuhu takes off a segment of a human being's leg in the box, that is a penalty. That part I can be sure of. That is a full clearance level hoof. Into Kamunga's leg,
1: yes, yep, hundred percent, no doubt about a penalty there. I, I take your point about Ladero starting in this game. I think it it very much fits Brian Schmetzer's uh, mo to to do that, and you detailed that well. It also, I think, from a tactical perspective, even even setting aside like some of, of what Ladero brings on the ball, to to get someone in that spot it doesn't have to be Ladero, but to get someone in that spot who can. Try and activate Jordan Morris a little bit more. It doesn't have to be Nico Ladero, but just looking at this squad, it, it's likely going to be. Rusnak has never been a high-level, you know, strictly playmaking number 10, and he, he got the start there in this game. Has done so for Seattle and Bits and Spurts in the past as well. But if you can get Jordan Morris running in behind, that's where he gets his goal in this game, scores a header in the first game, right? And like this is this is the biggest mismatch, I believe, that Seattle have to exploit against Dallas. Morris is not a, a Classic number nine, he's not super well-rounded in that spot, although I think he's gotten a lot better at it throughout his career. But when you have someone with his speed still against Sebastian Ibiaga, you feel very, very good about that. And the more times, especially early in a game, that you can activate Jordan Morris and try to get that early lead, or at least put doubt into the back of FC Dallas's mind, if you can take that lead, though, then all of a sudden Seattle get to do what they're best at, which is Seattle have never been a team that's fantastic at being the protagonist. They've never been the team that necessarily wants to have all of the burden of breaking you down. And Dallas will play against the ball a little bit more going back to Seattle. And so if Seattle get that early lead and forced Dallas to come out of their shell, it's only going to play into what Brian Schmetzer really wants to do, which is to take advantage of Jordan Morris's quality to find those one V one matchups in transition in Seattle. At that point, I think are going to be really, really hard to stop. So Yeah, I I will now be surprised, as it sounds like you will, if Ladero doesn't start from the jump. And I'd add
2: another thing, which is the two chances Dallas creates in the first game were playing off in a mid-block and then pressing off Yaimar and Jackson Reagan's pass, all coming in moments in which Yaimar and Reagan had reached their, their mental clock of like, okay, I shouldn't be on the ball anymore. Like Dallas was so far off that they had stepped forward, and then as a center back, you panic, which is like, okay, I'm done. I think Nico is a player that they trust, they have experience with, who comes and gets it a little bit quicker. And that's not a knock, the assumption being that Obed, Vargas, or Jocetensio, or one of those, is the one that comes off the field. I think both of those are phenomenal young players. I think they're both really special. They do a lot of good things already, and I think they'll do more in the future. But, like, Rusnak, Jao Paulo, and Nico Ladero are – more experienced players, higher level players—they've been there before. Yeah. What?
1: Better. I said they're better. Okay. Yeah. I
2: didn't know what word we were going to go with, so I was—I yeah. was giving. We can go with better. For it feels you. pretty safe. Yeah. So if that's what Dallas does again, which I'm not sure it, it is, is, I'm not sure that Dallas is going to take that blueprint and say this is how we play. Because again, with the shifts and the way the team changed a little bit with Velasco off the field, I think they'll try and hold some of that of playing with a little bit of a higher line a higher line of confrontation, both defensively and when they press, as well as bringing that back line up to keep the team compact. Um, but if that is what happens, I think in Lodero you have a safer outlet. You have someone who can sort of manage things and move things around a little bit easier. And if you take away those chances, you make the game a little bit easier for your team. So I think there's there's both sides of the ball, and that's one of the things that made has made Nico Lodero great is he is an elite attacking player in MLS who works really hard off the ball and is always an option. And that's what Seattle has relied on in the past. So I think Dallas has a chance because I think the backline's strong enough. I would be surprised if Farfan doesn't come back into the team if he's healthy. I think it's been odd that Ibiaga has been locked in as the starter. I think he struggled. I know it feels like Tafari is more comfortable on the left side, but I think Martinez has been better over the course of the season. But either way, Martin Poss is one of the best goalkeepers left. In the playoffs, like this is a Dallas team that I think will hang in games. And the question then just comes back down to goal scoring. And if Kamungo is healthy as he seems, and now he's gonna get another week to get fit and and whatever since the injury on decision day, this is a team that has enough chance on the break to create. And you talked about Jesus Ferreira having goal scoring wingers around him. It's because Ferreira is an elite chance creator. Yes. That's who he is at his core. And It hasn't fit what the team needs or how the team works, but I think it fits being on the road and saying, we're going to dump balls up to you when we win it back. Hold on to that ball, and then as you get runners off you, you go and create chances. Don't wait for the rest of us to get there.
1: Hope for FC Dallas fans, even with the Death Star in the Seattle Sanders waiting for you. All right, we're going to let that series be. That game is coming up. Game three is coming up later this week. We're going to take another break. When we come back, more MLS playoff chat and some coaching chat as well. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside
1: seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, folks, welcome back. We're digging into the series now that have been completed, FC Cincinnati took care of business in. Goss, you were there. You were at this game against the New York Red Bulls in a game that was super normal and nothing weird happened at all. Is that, it's not a shock though, right? Like Cincinnati Red Bulls, what's
2: going to happen? Well, it's going to be a car crash, blah, blah, blah. Like there's going to be some ridiculous moments and there was in a lot of different ways. The building was slightly empty, but it still bounces. And like, you felt like it was a playoff night. And honestly, I don't think Cincinnati gets a result if Andres Reyes doesn't play a free kick into a player for no reason. Like, I didn't see a ton of danger. Bupenza got behind once or twice. Dylan Nealis puts in a really good tackle one time. um, And he's clearly, based off the finish on the goal, an elite finisher. But I thought the Red Bulls came out and did the things they wanted to do. It's it's fascinating with Cincinnati, especially with Miazga, of like, we are more talented, but also we're going to ride this line. And clearly, Miazga needs to be in that red zone mentally to play. He is a leader on this team. And the question is when you cross that line and when you don't. And in this game, you could say in abstract, well, it's actually a good thing. The game was fairly even. Red Bulls were the better team. Like, you need something to break that momentum. Miaska took it over the line and I don't know how it affects his teammates over the course of the game. So yeah, it was wild. I mean, Red Bull fans were chanting Metro reject from like the first minute he touched the ball, which is hilarious cuz he got funny. sold to Chelsea. Yeah. So one, he's not rejected, he got sold to to one of the biggest teams in the world, not that he played that much there. Lone or, like all right. of all the yeah, of all the terms to use, that's a pretty funny one for him.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. And, and I'll go through and do at least some of the chaos moments from this game because you're right. Not totally unexpected. E- even just how this game ended was filled with chaos. So Cincinnati get a goal back. The Red Bulls have taken the lead early in this game. They tied up and then they score again. Like they score the game winning goal in second half stoppage time. It's Lucho Acosta takes a corner kick. The ball ends up in the back of the net through a sort of strange series of events. That goal is then called back because it's ruled that Cincinnati pushed Red Bull goalkeeper Carlos Cornell, which was the right decision. But anyway, you had that sort of jarring moment. Then it's the penalty kick shootout that comes with 1-1, goes to penalties. John Tolkien has sort of been the guy for this team. Has the swagger, does the interviews, very personable guy. We both talked to them, I'm guessing, multiple times in the past. He has a chance to win it in the shootout. And it hits the post. And right from that moment, I thought, oh, okay, Red Bulls are gonna be in some trouble because that it was the moment. like
2: the that. inside of the post with the keeper going the wrong way.
1: Yeah, it's cruel. It is cruel from a Red Bull perspective. That's the moment where I realized, okay, that was supposed to be it. Now there's gonna be some trouble. It doesn't just end there though, for uh, for, for the Red Bulls. Matt Miazga gets a yellow card, which is a second yellow of the game. Weirdly, because it's in the penalty kick shootout, it doesn't count and he doesn't get tossed out. He's not ejected. Well,
2: Go ahead. This is, by the way, the blowback of the Schlegel was in goal because Gaese got the second yellow from two years ago, which was the oh. clarification that yellows don't carry into the shootout. Fascinating. So Gaiase in that game got a yellow for coming off his line. It was his second yellow. He got so red he, was he got sent off. Right. Then the clarif- whether it was a clarification of a rule that already existed or it was changed, I don't remember, but it resets, which is yellow cards in a shootout are their own thing. You you don't get a red card for a second yellow, but you still get a yellow card in terms of
1: suspensions going forward. I'm so proud of you, Koss. What what a connection Thanks. to make there. I had not yeah. thought about that. Mioska gets that yellow card. It's the second of the game uh, for blowing kisses towards the crowd, which he clearly loves so much, after he scores his penalty. Then Carlos Cornell saves Mosquero's penalty kick, which gives Red Bulls another chance. Then Serge Goma skies it, and FC Cincinnati end up winning. Like, this is... J- it was just absurd. You had Troy Lesane getting ejected in this game, so he would have been gone for the next game regardless. Matt Miaska now will be missing the conference semifinal matchup for FC Cincinnati because of that second yellow, even though he wasn't ejected from this game, you also have the undercurrent for Cincinnati on top of all this chaos of Matt Miazga reportedly after the game, going into the referee's locker room and having to be removed through, uh, it doesn't sound like it was stadium security, but it sounds like maybe it was more of a staff member. The Athletic had a good piece about that. The Philadelphia Inquirer and and, uh, Pat Brennan from Cincinnati have all been sort of over that story. But either way, Matt Miazga was a little bit too far in the red miss zone, and he's going to miss... The next game for Cincinnati, as the Supporter Shield winners, they're now down Nick Hagland, who is an absence that you can overcome. They're now down Matt Miazga as well. And Ian Murphy, you, you pointed towards Andres Reyes as really struggling in this game. I thought Ian Murphy, center back for SC Cincinnati, was dreadful in this game. He was absolutely dreadful. He really struggled both on and off the ball. He could not get really a couple of actions right in a row. And I feel for him. But it it puts Cincinnati's defensive situation into even more question than it would have. You're now two center backs down, deeper in your depth chart. Maybe we're going to see Ray Gattis play as a center back. like it, It is not a good situation for Cincinnati. For a team that I agree with you, Goss, outside of blatant mistakes from the Red Bulls in game one, that were not here in game two, have not looked particularly dominant in this postseason. I still think Cincinnati will be favored and they should be in their next game. They'll be at home. You know, whoever they're facing will not be as good on quality as the Cincy team with Bupenza in the 11, but they don't look invincible right now to me. They don't look
2: invincible at all. Also, it's a bracket. So as of now, we think that's Philadelphia, which when you look at teams in the playoffs that, okay, maybe Cincy's more talented then, but that's a team that's been there. They literally beat Cincinnati in the playoffs last year. It was home. Like, and it is a team that plays with two forwards because I think one of my first thoughts with this whole thing... So my first thought is this is a big deal. Cincinnati, what I think took them over the line from good to great last year was Matt Miazga and the defense being better. mosquera is a huge part of that as well. I voted Miazga Defender of the Year. And part of the reason I voted him Defender of the Year was not just his individual contributions, but his ability to organize the back line to create a backline situation where Barial can go into the attack, where Arias, when he's on the field, can be a part of the attack and still have a, a strong enough rest defense that your team can be dangerous and be one of the best goal-scoring teams in the league to re- to protect Roman Solitano in spots where he struggles coming out in aerial 50-50s because he's 21 years old and hasn't grown to his full extent yet and isn't really experienced in those moments. I thought Matt Miazga did a lot this season to protect his team from all of that. So he's now gone. Then you add in haglin has gone. You don't have three center backs on a team that has played with three center backs the whole year. So do you now have to change your formation for pretty much the first time in the season in a single game elimination playoff against the reigning Eastern conference champions or the new England revolution, which if that, if I get that egg on my face, I'll take it at this point. Um, do you do that? Do you play a non center back at center back? Who do you then move to the middle is a huge question, right? If Ray Gaddis is the one that comes in, do you slide Mascara middle, which now changes his role from what he's done almost the entire year? Do you slide Ian Murphy there, who I completely agree with you just now, which is, I thought the Red Bull's best segment of the second half was they found a two minute period where they pinned the ball on Cincinnati's left side, and Celentano Miazga and Ian Murphy did not want the ball at their feet at all, and they kept either playing it out or playing it into turnovers. So do you slide him into the middle, and now you're building out through him? There are a massive amount of question marks for a Cincy team that had a great year, but they are not LAFC in 2019. Of They are the runaway best team, and no one can touch them, and they can play with one hand behind their back and still win in a single-elimination playoff game. So, I can't, I don't think we can understate how big this is, which in the end goes to, for Matt Miazga, you have to grow up. Like you are not the kid that plays behind Henri anymore with a bunch of veterans. You're the veteran. It's your responsibility, and you need to turn and, and kiss and throw hearts at the crowd. Like the yellow card in the um, shootout comes after Rivas stopped him, and he pulls away from the referee to do it again it's like, you can't do that. Referee tells you to stop. That's where you, at a minimum, that's where you stop. You never should have done it from the start. But at a minimum, that's where you stop. And I knew this was all coming because when Cincy scored and then the goal got waved back, the celebration on that goal was into the crowd in an away game. It was like, and and it was off the shootout as well. Celentano and Bupenza and a few other guys, I think Sergio Santos are like, run to the supporter section of the Red Bulls and are sort of like celebrating at them. And it was like, that's where everyone sort of mentally played this game. But I I just don't think you can overstate how big a loss this is with Miazga.
1: It's huge. And even though Cincinnati advanced out of this series, I'll be honest, I feel worse about them moving forward throughout the playoffs after it than I did before it started. The one silver lining, and then we got to move on to the next series, is, I know maybe you're like, Sort of just warm on Bupenza, not not totally hot on him from what you said. I think he's fantastic. I think he is a very, very good player And the fact that he's back in this lineup after Pat Noonan benched him for disciplinary reasons, coming back home late from international duty with Gabon. I don't I don't know the details of what happened there other than what Pat Noonan has said. He comes back in the lineup in this game Bupenza in the the second half, I believe, because Don Baji comes got off hurt in the first yes. half yeah. so so Baji has to come off. Bupenza comes on. And, like, that's Pat Noonan's hand being forced, but yeah. in a decision that he probably wanted to make because Bupenza is just night and day better than, than Don Bocci.
2: I agree with you on Bupenza's quality. I don't think he's integrated yet. So in terms of his ability to completely affect the game in this team, I don't think we're there yet. But I agree with you on the ball's over the top to Bupenza, and obviously the goal, the, the finish on the goal is fantastic. Of At full speed, inside of the foot, perfectly placed to the far post. Those are all things Don is yeah. not capable of doing on an MLS field.
1: Yep, agreed on all of those things. All right, let's move over back to the Western Conference. Sporting Kansas City, take <sighs> care work. of business oh, against St. We Louis. No. I was bro-
2: heartbroken for Vancouver before we even Just got Just
1: save there. that energy. Save that energy. Gus, yeah. we'll get to it in like you know four or five minutes. Sporting Kansas City, take care of business. They sweep their new rivals in Major League Soccer. I mentioned this, I believe, on Monday when we did quick hits on these games. This did not feel like an upset to me. And I think a lot of other people would echo that sentiment. Goss, I'm curious about your perspective. Yes, it's 8v1. It's the bottom seed in the West against the top seed. But based off of form and based off of game one and based off of how good Sporting, Sporting Kansas City have been since May 1st, this to me felt much more like an expected result than an unexpected one.
2: I understand that. I think I agree. I sort of made the joke at the top of like St. Louis was a bit of a soft one seed. 56 points is not a massive number. I think they would be, what, fourth in the East? They'd be one point ahead of fifth, whatever it was. Like That's what we're talking about. And for an expansion team, I I still... And I don't really know how to come to grips with them in Vancouver. I still think both of them underperformed in areas that were not forced by their opponents and were basically just low performances. And the big one is set pieces. Attacking set pieces. St. Louis just... Either didn't execute, whether it was the runs or the quality of the service on a single set piece in this game. You have Pompeo score on the shot cross, but like that is one of your bread and butters. And to not even be dangerous on a set piece is shocking when you go on the road in the playoffs. The only reason I would say it's. Not a surprise. Whatever is home teams win in in MLS. And yes, we all think SKC is better than an eight seed. I think that's a pretty universal feeling across the board.
1: It's a bitter end for St. Louis to what has been a magical expansion season for them. There's no way... To, to twist that, you can't spin it any other way. It's a terrible end to the year for them. It hurts. The fact that it comes against SKC probably hurts all the more. That being said, if you're a St. Louis fan, you should be ecstatic with how the season went. You got to shove it in the face of every doubter for 34 games of the regular season, which is awesome. Like that is an awesome sports feeling. And you had to shove it in, in my face. You can shove it in Goss's face. And to still come out and, and to make the postseason, to do all these things, to be close to setting, you know, records and, and to set a couple records as an expansion team in MLS, that's an incredible thing. And so the fact that they had that regular season is awesome. I'm curious from your perspective on St. Louis, David, what needs to happen for them to avoid a drop, right? We talk about them and it's not just our feeling that they're a weak one seed. You go back and look at the one seeds throughout the last decade or whatever it is. They are on points. They're they're not the strongest one seed. We can watch the tape and see some fortunate bounces that they got at the start of year that they didn't get at the end of the year. You can see Roman Berkey maybe losing a bit of his edge at the end of this season and in game one of this series and maybe even a bit in this second game. You can see some of these things that are, are warning signs and the lack of quality form coming into the postseason is a warning side sign. Excuse me, what needs to happen, David, from your perspective, for St. Louis to avoid what... I honestly think, and I'm not trying to rub salt in the wound, could be an Austin-like drop-off for them next year, looking at what Austin did from 2022 to this season.
2: I think the first thing you have to do is assess, was Joachim Nielsen hurt at the end of the year or not back, or is this who he is? Because if that's the case, you have to go out and spend that money differently on a center back. I think that was one of the weaknesses we saw, especially in Game 1, against SKC, which was something they were just trying to hold the fort on. And then Nielsen struggles in game one. Yarrow starts game two. The second thing I would do is I would look at the attributes you got from players that were maybe unexpected, which was a huge part of St. Louis' season, and say, how can I upgrade on what this player does well? So when you look at the Vasilevs and the Strouds and Pompeos and Joachinis and Adenarins, what are the attributes that they brought to the team that affected things positively? And can you go out and find players at a Tam or DP level that have those exact attributes and then add more to the game? And I think what you saw in this playoff game was there were not players outside of Klaus that were able to change the geometry for SKC. Whether it was taking players 1v1 in the dribble, whether it was breaking lines with their passing, whether it was forcing turnovers and being able to get them out quickly. There's one moment where I think it's Rosero plays a poor pass into Stroud's feet and Stroud tries to one-time it into the path of a Denneran, and he overhits it and it goes to the corner. At that point, at 0-0, that's a St. Louis chance, and that has to be. And so I think the point is you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because you lost the playoff game. You try and assess what worked, and how do you elevate it to the next level? Austin tried that in places. I think where Austin struggled was – the things that worked last year that were fool's gold, they weren't able to assess properly. And the assumption that Diego Fugundes would play at that level again, the assumption that they get the same performances out of center backs like Cascante that they got in the past didn't hold true, but Brad Stuver did, right? So you got to find what's real and what was a trend and try
1: and then roll that over to the next season. I agree with that. And I think that's the right roster building and sort of thought process to go into during the off season for my money, they need to use that third DP spot because I think the attack is the biggest thing that you can't rely on producing at this high level, getting some of those turnovers early on in the year. The book's out on you at this point, right? And that's not a bad thing. Having an identity is, is a good thing in Major League Soccer. It allows your players to come together and try to be more than the sum of their parts. It gives them a chance to do that. St. Louis need to add quality. They need that third DP spot. Either a number 10 for me so that you can let Levin play playmake a bit deeper or a high level winger and you tweak the shape a little bit. I think they they very much need one more difference maker and you kind of got to that. I also think they might need another number six as well. I'm not in love with the fullback options, but in in a diamond shape or in a pretty reserved at times 4-4-2 block that leads into a high pressing shape, you can kind of get away with high energy guys that don't bring a whole lot on the ball in those spots. But there are pretty clear areas in my mind that St. Louis will need to improve on to avoid. I mean, they're going to drop, right? The odds of them finishing top of the West are very, very low. Even setting aside the underlying numbers and all that jazz, they're going to drop. The question is just sort of how far, and you really can minimize some of that stuff if you're St. Louis. Yeah, go ahead. You got one more beat on St. Louis. Go for it. What's your takeaway after the playoffs, after the year on Klaus? I think he is good. I don't think he is a number one attacking option good. That's okay. my that's my take on him. I, I don't think he's a guy that you can necessarily rely on to bang in 15 goals a year. I think he could get you 12 in 2,000 minutes. The biggest problem for him this year was he just couldn't stay healthy, right? Uh-huh. And the other problem is, from a striker's perspective, they don't have a true playmaker. At the beginning of the year, the press was the playmaker, the classic Jurgen Klopp thing. And then that started being the case less and less and less as the year goes on. Maybe you get a little bit tired, teams know what to expect, all of a sudden he's been on an island a lot more and they needed a second forward to combine and, and do that stuff, but it's not it's not consistent enough. So I I think he's a a starting level player in MLS at this point, but I don't think he's a guy that you can build a team around.
2: Yeah, I, I fall a little bit higher on him, I think, than you, of you just watch how shifty he is and how he changes I talked about the geometry, how he changes things sometimes with like a weird touch off his thigh a body movement that you don't expect. And I look at the strikers in MLS and like, to me, he's above Swiderski who maybe shouldn't be a a number one DP. And that's part of Charlotte's problem. He's probably behind a Yakumakis, but he's somewhere on the scale of Chicho Arango in my mind. The problem being like they have Jefferson Severino around Arango. They spent money on Andres Gomez. Like, I think you are right in that there needs to be more playmaking around him. But even after the series he had, which he struggled to get touches i think he struggled to get involved i think the way he played in the second game of like continuing to grind through it and then does help create chances towards the end i walked away saying i think he's good enough to be a one but he has to be a one that has two high level guys around him he can't be a one like lucho acosta and it's like he'll just win us games we can we can play whatever we want around
1: him yeah there are levels to that discussion i think maybe we're still slightly off but on the whole we would agree that st louis need more quality around Job, Klaus. Either way, quickly on Sporting Kansas City because we'll get more chances to talk about you because your season's not over. Unlike St. Louis, I thought they were they were good in this game. I didn't think they blew the doors off. St. Louis is is you know a team that when they play a bit more conservatively, as they did for stretches of this game, is not the easiest to blow the doors off of. But one thing that really impressed me about this SKC team it took them a few minutes to grow into the game. Eventually, they found ways to play through St. Louis, and St. Louis were sitting off a bit deeper. They were breaking lines either to Walter or Radoja in that midfield area. And then once they found those players, it was quick switches to the far side, or it was just those switches to the far side to then open up space in midfield. It it wasn't anything mind-blowing from SKC here, but they know how they want to play. Now that they're back and healthy, they have the players that they want to be on the field, actually on the field, which was not the story for them to start the year. Now that that's the case and they have the best players on the field together at the same time, by and large, it, it completely changes the calculus for them. For me, they are favorites right now to make it to at least the Western Conference Final in the West over either Houston or RSL, whoever comes out of that series. That's what I was going to say, which is the bracket broke for them. And that's like
2: one of the nice things about being the low seed is you become the one seed. And so they went from playing the number one seed out of the playoffs, pretty much going into decision day, to LAFC and Seattle are on the other side of the bracket and Houston fits their game model which is they can fight fire with fire there. It's probably going to be a less transition game. Or RSL, who, while they'll be the home team, I think might be the weakest team left in the Western Conference. So for SKC, I think I said this when it happened, but like I think you see why Peter Vermes celebrated when they got through on decision day. A lot of people were like, this is below you. You're a nine seed or you're an eight seed. You shouldn't be celebrating this. And I think he saw, which was like, once we get in in this form, We can go pretty far. And if they go to a conference finals, they go to MLS Cup, it's a good season. They lost 10 games to start the year. They scored like two goals. And in the end, it might end up being a positive season for them.
1: MLS is weird. And SKC have have certainly come back strong. All right, Goss, do your sad thing about Vancouver. Um, Whenever you're ready, you can be sad. And and I, I welcome your thoughts.
2: It's just you watch a team over the course of two games that played below their quality in a lot of ways in which they didn't over the course of the season, even on decision day against LAFC. And I think game one, it was the set piece defending, obviously game two. It was just the lack of um, energy and focus to the attack. And this is a team that normally wins the ball back. They hit one of the channels sometimes with a blind ball because they've got the two forwards running in there. They've got wing backs attacking that space. And you didn't feel them ramp up the pressure in front of a record crowd against LAFC at any point. I think it's a bad penalty kick call. I think they're playing from a deficit when they didn't have to. That allows LAFC to play off a little bit, which ended up being bad for Vancouver because Vancouver thought they were going to sit in a mid block. And there's segments of this game where LAFC is just knocking the ball around the back and there's no pressure on anyone. And so to to not be able to recognize the shift in the game states and then not be able to bring the energy up to another level. I just think that's really disappointing. We talk about what Richie LeRae has done well this year, drawing the penalty kicks. That's because defenders are under pressure. They're panicked. They're dealing with multiple fires. It's not because Richie takes someone on one time and they foul him. It comes from repeated pressure put on defenders. That was never the case in this game. I don't even really care about personnel. I just thought from an energy and focus point of view, it wasn't there from Vancouver. And repeatedly over the last two years, we've talked about like the next step with them, right? They're being methodical. They're not going out and finding one player that they think is going to fix everything. It's little changes as they go along. Okay, Gold fits as a second forward. Who's the number 10s that we can bring in? Vitae fits, shop fits. Oh, we're playing with wingbacks? Okay, let's go get out of Kube. Let's go get Larea. We need a third center back. Let's go get Laborda goalkeeper like it hasn't been this is a whole new roster change or this one guy is going to fix us but the next step at some point is just understanding how to elevate your game in big moments and that's the part that I probably underestimated coming into this postseason of like teams that have been there and teams that haven't I think St. Louis and Vancouver are the two biggest examples and just the inability to
1: recognize how the game changes and what it requires from you individually. I like you mentioned Laborda there, just to quickly mention he's in the hardest of hard tuck category There's, in Major League with Soccer. With the mustache. With the mustache as well. I mean, he is rocking that tight tuck with the jersey into the shorts. Ricky Pouge, I believe, rocks the tuck a decent amount. Yeah. And Ray Gaddis as well, who's getting a weird amount Sam of run Piette on this show. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, Sam Piet, absolutely. So just to sort of, you know, shine a light on on the hard tuck squad in Major League Soccer. Vancouver lose this game, just to be very clear, 1-0 <laughs> to LAFC, the only goal. I was wondering if you were going to set the stage, but I let nah, you do the I Vancouver like thing. I don't setting so. stages. Right, you don't carry the piano, my mistake. Um, you're the playmaker, as, as we already discussed. LAFC yeah. score, their one goal of the game comes off of the penalty that you mentioned. It's, it is a soft penalty. I think that's very, very clear. Vancouver fans feeling hard done by Tim Ford, who was the referee in this game for a number of reasons. He also clatters into a Vancouver player and gives LAFC a counter late in stoppage time. Or late in the second half, at the very least, that then Carlos no, was absolutely clubs. Yeah, it was. And that would ice the game. That would have made it 2-0. Didn't matter. Vancouver couldn't get back in this game. Vanny Sartini said some stuff that uh, will get him fines, and he's come out and apologized for some of that. But either way, Vancouver just weren't quite good enough in this game. And some credit, I think, should go to LAFC. Steve Sorondolo goes with a more defense-first lineup in this game. So he makes a few changes from game one. It's Aaron Long in for Chiellini. It's Cal NaCosta in for Bogus in midfield. And it's Mario Gonzalez in for Carlos Vela in the front line. Those are players you get to rest Vela a little bit. You don't have to worry about his lack of defensive contribution so much. You get Acosta into midfield and, and you get long. And what he can still bring is a little bit of defensive energy. Three very clearly defense-minded changes from Steve Cherundolo. When they get that early goal, it's great news for LAFC. Because they set up in this game from the jump. As they have done for most of the season. But even more so with the personnel to play against the ball. And to make your life very, very difficult. in Vancouver... Just didn't have enough to get over the line. And and I agree with you. We've seen this team play at higher levels, Vancouver, than they did in either one of these games. The first game was an absolute disaster from them on defensive set pieces. The second game was just sort of fine. It never felt like they got out of first gear. And I honestly don't know if that's a mentality problem, if that's, you know, some sort of intangible issue. Or I look at this squad for Vancouver. They have a lot of very good players, lot of very good players. Andres Kubas is a very good player. Brian White is a very good player. Ryan Gold is a very good player. You can look at the wingback spots. I think Richie Larea can be a very good attacking player. I don't know if they have a single great player on this team. And, and I think that limits their ceiling. I look at the squad, and to be honest, it's not easy to find an area where it's so obvious that they need to improve, at least in terms of the starting 11. I sort of think number 8 is is maybe the obvious spot for them. Maybe it's a number 10 if, if Vite's role is deeper as it was in this game in a 3-4-3 in, three, three in possession. But like They just don't have the guy, right? It's not quite Ryan Gold and it's not quite Brian White. They're both very good, but I don't know if they have quite enough. And LAFC, even though I don't think they've been at quite their best in the postseason either, say what you will, they have the guy. They have a couple of those guys. And I think for Vancouver, it's going to be a little difficult for them to, to reach higher than, say, fourth in the West, which is maybe where I'd have them coming into next year, with the current squad, so...
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a fair complaint. I think to me the number ten is the one where it's like,
1: can you get someone who makes the game so easier? So you don't for think everyone? it's Gald? You don't think Gald is is that guy? You you view him as a second forward next to Brian White. I mean he was playing in a in 3-4-3 three, three in this game sort of off the left, but
2: Yeah, I, I think even if he is, like the way he fits in the team, someone else can fit in there with him. So I'm fine if it's Gald. Then you need to go get a second forward. You need one more piece in the attack. Like you need someone who's can be goal dangerous themselves. I think is the key point of this. I will say, I thought Atacube was really underwhelming the entire season that he played. He was hurt. He came back. One of the weird things Vanni Sartini tried in this one was to swap Atacube and Larea a couple times. I'm in favor of swapping players around the field. I think it resets a defender's like, comfort level. So I like doing that. But atacube can't play with his right foot and so you had him come inside every single time for a team that has Brian White, who's an elite aerial 50-50 winner in the box, and half of your attack is based off crosses. At some point in late in the second half, they whipped in a cross. It was one of the most dangerous moments from the left corner. It was the first time in the entire game that they'd whipped in a dangerous cross. Multiple Vancouver corner kicks led to LAFC breaks, and that's what I said with St. Louis of like, you... We talked about defending on set pieces for Vancouver, but you have to be dangerous. That's purely on execution, whether it's on the quality of the ball, the direction of the ball, or the quality of the runs. You cannot have multiple situations where not only do you not challenge on the free kick,
1: but the other team has a chance to score a goal. At least some things to think back on for Vancouver and and to try and plot out as the offseason gets underway for them. LAFC continued to sort of just churn forward. It feels like they haven't. Really met their match at this point in the postseason. It's early days, but they'll be favored moving on in this competition. Last series to talk about. This has been a long episode. Nashville SC lose to Orlando City. They lose 1-0 at home in Nashville. Orlando sweep the series. I'm sorry, guys that you didn't get your penalty kick. DSP, I thought it was a good one. think it was merited. You know, there was lots of logic in there. It didn't work out for you. I was close. Two 1-0s. <laughs> on that far off. You were not. You were not, and it was it was a, it was a good idea. And ultimately, the spirit of VSPs is to give people something to watch for, and you did just that. This game was not good. It was not a good game. It was not an entertaining game. That's been Nashville's mo really since Leagues Cup, and even a bit before Leagues Cup as well. They make the run to the final there. Surge looks great in Leagues Cup, and he and Hani are, are linking up very very well. You get out of Leagues Cup, and all of that fades away. Nashville are are impotent in the attack. They really have struggled a lot putting the ball in the back of the net. And Orlando were fine. They they did just enough. They've f- pounce on a turnover from Dax McCarty, and Gulo gets in the box and takes a good deflection and the ball's in the back of the net in the sixth minute and they never look back in this game. And Nashville, for their part, are never goal dangerous. And that's a very, very simple recipe for Orlando City who have honestly not really been tested either at this point with Nashville who just look like a really, really poor team right now. Goss, if you're Nashville, where do you go from here? You
2: have a team in Nashville that didn't have a single player outside of maybe Hani, and Hani couldn't do it that could break lines in any way, whether it was dribbling or passing. Everything for Orlando was clean and structured, and at no point did you threaten to break that, and the only option would be to play in crosses, which they refused to do for Surridge's height. So I, I think at some point you have to look at your central midfield and say, how can we get someone who changes the game offensively? Randall Leal's not that player. I think Schaffelberg and Pico and, and guys like that have had good moments this season. Wheel as well. None of them are that player either. And, and that's the piece I think that they've never really been able to put together. And that's the piece they've never really been able to add. It will take away probably defensively. Like the odds that you find a Nico Ladero who does both are pretty low. You're going to have to find ways to be okay with that. Otherwise, you're going to keep running into this wall.
1: Yeah, it certainly seems like Nashville, even with them adding a nine. And I did think that was going to be a huge asset for this team. Them but going out and signing Sam Surge. That's the problem. That is the problem. It felt like they they added something. They plugged one hole, which was needing a goal scorer to supplement what Hani Mukhtar brings on the attack, needing a number two. They plugged that hole, and they also left open still a bunch of other holes that have been there and have only gotten worse as the midfield has gotten older. Yes, they go out and sign Sean Davis, you know, several windows ago to be a little bit more of a youthful presence in that space, but, you know, he's he's a veteran, they don't have a lot of energy. They don't have a ton of reliable ball progressors, to your point, in that space. So you plug one hole, and as time's gone on, other holes have opened up. They need more quality out wide in terms of the attacking ability, or they at least need more ball progressors in central midfield to take some of the playmaking burden off of Hani Mukhtar, who's more of a scorer than he is a chance creator. So feels like some of these issues were predictable for Nashville, and we've talked about them a, a decent amount before. They have some thinking to do, because if things continue structurally with Mike Jacobs continuing on in his GM role, Gary Smith in the head coach role, it seems to me that the things have sort of hit their ceiling, right? Unless they have a fantastic offseason, which is not impossible. Nashville have done a good job on a lot of different signings and a lot of different windows. They've also missed a lot. Like this is a pivotal offseason for Nashville for their ownership to decide, you know, do we think we can squeeze any more juice out of this orange with this current orange, or do we need to go out there and find something else? And, and I would lean a little bit more towards the second in that Nationals sort of are tapped out with how they've gone about things, but time will tell. One beat on Orlando very, very quickly. They were fine in this game. Like I I didn't see a lot. They didn't have to do a lot. They haven't had to do a lot in this series. I think they will be tested more and more going forward, but they continue to look solid and their ability, Gus, to play against all sorts of different kinds of teams. If they need to be the protagonist a little bit, they can. If they need to sit off a little bit, they can. They've done bits and pieces of both of those things in this series, and I think their ability to be flexible is one of the biggest things that makes them dangerous. I think all the matchups going forward for them are more comfortable. I think they're
2: more comfortable being the antagonist in big games. And it's what you saw in this, and they barely were able to squeak over the line because Nashville's not a team that pushes the play. But Columbus, Atlanta, I think those are perfect matchups for Orlando. I think then going forward as well, whatever it is, in the conference finals is. Now, I don't think Orlando's better than any of those teams, so I don't think they'll win. But I thought this was a tougher matchup for them because I thought there would be moments where they had to. And a Wilder Cartagena-Wonder goal completely changed that.
1: And I feel for Nashville a bit that that's how the first game went and this goal is a fluky one for Orlando and they weren't super dangerous other than that. But ultimately, if you can't create chances yourself in your structure, there are problems with you first and foremost. So, issues also, there.
2: Also, fluky goal, but it's a Dax McCarty turnover. Like,
1: yeah. Your
2: core, your base is we don't give up goals. We're tough defensively. We have that experienced midfield. We have walkers and blah, blah, blah. If Dax is going to turn the ball over in that spot, you're going to lose.
1: And they did, David. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap on the playoff chat. Two quick things before we get out of here very, very quickly. On the coaching side, there's been a couple of pieces of news as this week has gone on. First, the Portland Timbers chose to hire Phil Neville as their Gio Savaree replacement. I'm the one who wanted to bring this up in the rundown, so I'm going to do the first beat on this. Why? I don't, I don't understand it. Even just looking strictly at the soccer reasons, I struggle to find really compelling reasons that, that Phil Neville is someone who should be considered for this job. The Portland job should be a good one. It should be a fun one. They should be a fun team. Phil Neville never made that Miami squad. Yes, they're dealing with some roster sanctions. He still had quality in that team. He never made them into more than the sum of their parts. Gonzalo Higuain would drop into midfield and, and throw up his arms, literally trying to figure out what on earth was going on in their structure back in 2021. Portland need a coach who's gonna come in and take the pieces they have and elevate them. And I don't think we've ever seen that from Phil Neville really in, in any coaching job. But thinking back to the most relevant one in Miami, yeah, he gets the raw into the stick that he doesn't get to coach Messi and friends. And if he had, they would have been a better team. Tato Martino gets that benefit. Phil Neville does not. Still, I, I just really don't understand why this is the move that Portland would try to make to energize a fan base that needs to be re-energized with all the crap that's gone on there. And to try to make them into a genuine contender in the Western Conference, which they have not been. Like, I, I, I just don't understand this, Scott. Can you make this make sense? No, not really. I think I agree with a lot of what you said. I think it's
2: uninspired. I think this is just me guessing. I think ownership and, and people in front offices in MLS think Phil Neville's a big name and they're excited about Phil Neville and Man U and Gary Neville and like all these things. Uh, I'm pretty sure he got interviews with like all of the openings that he wanted. And I'm pretty sure he got a call from every opening that existed. There isn't really a like standard profile for what makes a good MLS coach. So all these people are still kind of guessing and trying. and I don't know why they end up where they end up on a lot of these. I think we're gonna say this a lot over the next two months. Like there are eight job openings in MLS in this off season. I think we're gonna be surprised by a lot of the people who get hired to fill in. The other thing I would add, i I, I push back a little to a lot of people. I thought Miami was good in 2022. I thought he did decent with a little bit. I actually thought he created a decent defensive structure. I thought he found some gaps and openings that made them a more competitive team. In MLS, one of the big things you see for a lot of coaches, like what's their background in terms of talent pool? What are the players that they know about that they're going to bring in? And with Phil Neville, it was Ryan Shawcross and Kieran Gibbs. And so I worry for Portland, which is like, you have Ned Grabovoy who's MLS heavy, connected here. What is Phil Neville bringing in terms of transfers and players to that team? And I don't think it's a lot. And that's, I think, a little bit worrying for Portland as well, where with Gio Savarese, they clearly leaned on his background in South America, and I think to a ton of success. Where are they leaning now? And where are they getting better? And and how is Phil Neville progressing this club and I don't think that this signing answers a lot of those questions.
1: Yep. Things are great for the Portland Timbers. One other club that things are great for right now, Charlotte FC. They fired Christian Latanzio or, excuse me, parted ways with Christian Latanzio earlier this morning as we're recording on Wednesday, November 8th. Not unexpected, I, I guess. I don't know. Charlotte, are, are and I tweeted this. They're like the messiest club in Major League Soccer, or one of the messiest clubs in Major League Soccer. There doesn't seem to be any vision or coherency that comes down from the front office into the coaching staff, into the signings that are on the field. There has not really been a strong alignment. I, I don't know. I, Charlotte are are not a good team. They're not a well-run organization. This is a massive offseason for them. Now to not only overhaul the roster, which needs to be overhauled, but now having to find a coach first before you can do those things to figure out how the players that are here fit in whatever structure they want to play and what other signings you need and maybe also trying to sign some good players for a change would be helpful as well.
2: Yeah, this is all the pressure on Zoran Cornetta As a GM or someone who runs a front office, Like the pressure is on the coach. Once you fire the coach, and this is the third time he's doing that, um, or I guess second time, third time he's hiring a coach, it shifts to you, which is like you're the problem if it goes wrong again. I think you mentioned the quality of the roster. I like Swiderski. I yep. think you saw flashes Same. from Capetti. You could argue none of their three DPs are designated player quality in major league soccer. And what's sad is you've spent the money. It's not like with Colorado or some of these other teams where you're like, will, Dallas, it's like, will you spend the money? They spent it and they spent it poorly. And I think that's the worst case scenario. And then you look at Cincinnati and you're like, how quickly it can change under the right people with the right vision. And so if I'm a Charlotte fan, this is a huge year. Who does Zoran turn to? How does he reshift this roster? I think part of the reason Christian Latanzio is gone is like the assessment at the end of the year of how to win was to move away from the players Cornetta brought in. And like Andrew Privet becomes a starter. Patrick Ojemont earns more minutes. Like I don't think those are the guys Zoran Cornetta is saying, this is the roster I built. And so if that's the assessment from the coach through the course of the season, you can see how there's a difference in opinion between the two of them. So he's um, let go. It'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Obviously, Miguel Angel Ramirez was a pretty big name, but unorthodox coming from overseas. And then Latanzio had worked at NYCFC and then was the interim at um, Charlotte before he got the full-time job. So it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Does Croneta maybe lean back on his European roots and find someone who he shares a soccer brain with, who likes the same type of players that he does, that sees it the same way? Does he try and lean into more MLS experience? to sort of cover for some of the things he's struggled with at times. It'll be interesting to see where they go.
1: Ryan Bailey, I'm sorry. Charlotte are a mess, and it's not (laughs) likely to get better anytime soon, but who knows? Maybe they nail absolutely every decision, and again, there are a lot of them on their plate this offseason, and we look really stupid because they're good next year. That's not going to happen. Gus, anything else that you want to get to? Yeah, yeah, hey. If you make the playoffs, that's all I'm yeah. saying. That's all you got to do. Well, they finished do. ninth last
2: year, and then they finished ninth this year. And the difference? They expanded the playoffs.
1: Mm, and that quality is quality campaign winning. from Charlotte. Yeah. All right, that's the note we're leaving it on, on uh, one last hit at the playoff format in Major League Soccer. David Goss, thank you for joining me and running through all of the Major League Soccer action. We got through a bunch of stuff today, and I'm tired of talking. Go rest. Thank you. I needed to hear that. From one playmaker to another, that just felt right to hear. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back with plenty more soccer talk. We got Champions League, big thing, and plenty more MLS talk coming throughout the postseason. For now, we'll talk to you again real soon.